0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty
1: (laughs) Bliss.
2: They have you well trained, because that's a lot of noise from a very small audience. But thank you, thank you. And uh, welcome to our little, uh, well, parlour of conversations is what we like to call it, and our second season of Pantasocracy. It's a place where, well, everyone is supposed to be equal, and where anything can happen, really. And, um... Since this is radio, um, our listeners will have to take it as an, you know, article of faith that I look absolutely gorgeous, um, channeling, you know, Farrah Fawcett here. (laughs) (laughs) And in our parlor today, we have, um, well, some rather fabulous folk. First up is a woman who rocked it with Shane McGowan and the Pogues, and who now plays bass for a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet. It's the ever-young Korto (laughs) Riedon. Um, next to court is, a, well, a, f- a fellow survivor, can we say that, of the <laughs> 80s music scene. Um, the very handsome Feet No Brain On. Thank you. <laughs> nice to be here. Obviously from the Hot House flowers, of course, and these days also the golden voice of late-night radio. Um, <laughs> and then we have a young woman who is a new Irish talent, um, singer Farah L., uh, who brings the risks of her Libyan roots to her unique sound. Thank you for coming, Farah. All the way from Julianstown in County Meath. And finally, um, we have, well, um, a man of many words, I think we can say, uh, a performance poet, Dubliner Stephen James Smith, uh, who is the voice behind the My Ireland film that went viral um, after la- last this year's St. Patrick's Day Festival, and who has played everywhere from a psychiatric ward to the three arena this year alone. Say hi to Stephen. <laughs> uh, so we have a host of, well rather fabulous storytellers for us here. But um, as is my, well, habit, because the show does have my name in the title, I get to start off uh, with a few words. You know, when we're putting the guests of these shows together, often small themes sort of, sort, sort of arise. So um, uh, this is what we call, very, with great imagination, the panty monologues. You know, perhaps you have to leave home to love it, or at least you have to leave home to love it warts and all. Leaving gives you perspective, allows you to see the home woods for the home trees. Like most people of my generation, I picked up my skirts and ran away from Ireland as soon as I was educated, or at least educated enough to really start learning. Sure, I went because I felt I had to. There wasn't much here for me, or perhaps especially for someone like me in the depressed gray eighties. But I also went because I wanted to, MTV and The Face magazine had convinced me that there was an altogether brighter, more colourful world at the far end of a ferry or a flight. And indeed there was. But there was also plenty of stuff that wasn't. An ease of place, a sense of belonging, a way with words, thanking the bus driver and Sally O'Brien and the way she might look at you. They say you can take (laughs) home with you, but that's wishful thinking. (laughs) Sure, you can build a new one, but the old one is always there on the periphery of your vision, pulling your focus on birthdays and funerals and soft days. And every emigrant eventually has to decide if peripheral vision is enough. So, like I said, when we're sort of putting these things together, um, all of these smaller themes sort of... Present themselves, I would say, and um, and home is one of the things that I think our uh, sense of it that all four of you have in common. Quash, I'm going to start with you because it might come as a surprise to lots of people that you were born in Nigeria. Yeah. Um. But where do you think of as home?
0: I think of Dublin as home now. I was born in Nigeria, but I was only there for a year and a half, and the Biafran Civil War situation started up, and the oil company my dad worked for pulled a lot of workers out. He was dropped back in London, and he stuck it for a little while, and then he hopped off onto the next gig and uh, left us there, so I grew up there, and then I moved over here When I was 24, but all those years in between, I grew up Mm. with a very romantic idea of Ireland that I found out isn't completely (laughs) true. (laughs) But like you say, you make your own home. Once I was here, I was here and I was going to make the most of it. And when I'm away, I kind of enjoy where I am. But when I come back, I'm so thrilled yeah. to be here and to have roots here and, to, you know, yeah. to see people and say hi. And them. it's like, cheers. They know your name. Yeah. <laughs> people know how to pronounce my name here.
2: <laughs> um, now, Fikini, you are Dublin born and bred and all of that. But an, an interest of mine always is about language and accents and all of those things. And actually, that's why I love coaches, because it you can hear her history in her accent yes but but you grew up in a gale goer family I did and and I won't say how old we are um, but (laughs) it was just long enough before
3: sort of being a gale goer in in
2: South County Dublin was cool yeah (laughs) you know because
3: nowadays it's Kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Arguably nowadays, there's even a kind of a mini Gweldtacht in South County Dublin or in Dublin, in all of Dublin. And I grew up going to all Irish-speaking schools. So, you know, we'd get home from school and we might be playing in the front garden and all the boys from Blackrock College would be walking by the house and there's those strange Irish speakers, you know, (laughs) and there'd be a bit of slagging and that kind of thing going on. So there was a sense of being a bit different whilst not being different at all, really. But there was always a sense of being lucky. To have the language and to be raised as Gaelge and to be afforded the opportunities to go to the west of Ireland where my mother's roots were and, and to carry where my father's roots are and to go to those Gaelteacht areas where there's such a, a richness of life that is unique to here. So you know.
2: And a little like Coch, who I would suggest has a number of homes, there's London, there's Dublin and you spend a lot of time in New York too, right?
3: And if you, you have a second home sort of in... Paris. Yes, I have a kind of a a, a Parisian chapter. (laughs) Um, I can trace that back to when I was about five or six years old when my parents took in a lodger. Françoise is her name and Françoise is now the same age as my parents. I think 43, 44 years later, my mum and dad, they have holidayed together every summer since then. So as a kid, I got the opportunity to go to France when I was about seven and I learned how to speak French. And I ended up living in, in Paris, between around about 2006, 2005, 2006, for about four or five years. And you have family there. I have a daughter. Yeah. There, and it's the reason The reason I moved over there was to be near her when she was very little. And it was at a time in my life when I was able to be there. Uh, I was making my living only b- by touring with, with Hot House Flowers. Oh. And it meant that I could be based anywhere. Mm.
2: And, and Stephen, you, in, in a sense, are super identified in a way with Dublin. Because the first time I really knew of your work was uh, we're Dublin and then that I guess led on to the Ireland thing. So tell us your Dublin background here yeah I'm, I'm a Protestant so I'm a token Protestant on
4: here on the panel uh, which is, is, is some people are kind of surprised to hear that I'm a Southside Dublin Protestant and they, the, a lot of people when they hear the poem they kind of go oh he must be an inner city Northsider." it's like no but in fairness identity yeah. uh, I can identify with many different parts of Dublin and I was scared to write that poem in truth uh, being aware of the lineage of great uh, Dublin poems and, and literature but I just had to go for it and try and reflect all parts of it but yeah I, I'm just I grew up uh, between Tala and Naklion and parents split up I've done all sorts of things in my life being a salesman whatever but I'm, I feel like I'm a Dub and a bit like you said yourself when, when you get to travel a bit more and see a bit more of the world it's helped me to maybe identify with Dublin a bit more Yeah. Um, I,
2: I, actually, I didn't realise you were a you Protestant and that's always <laughs> interesting to me because a lot of our guests that we've had on Panda Soccer you have come from different from religious backgrounds yeah. and it's always interesting to me people who grew up in a different religious experience and whether or not you ever felt that your Irishness was called into question because of it yeah it would have been
4: uh, now if, to be honest, with you like I I don't subscribe to any religion. It's just when I was baptised. Yeah. know. I don't I, I don't go to church. Uh, <gasps> Heathen. Uh, my yeah, my mother my mother does, and she'd be quite hardcore now. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, sorry, I'm disappointed. She's a hardcore sure. probably. Yeah, <laughs> funny enough, she'd go to uh, Roman Catholic churches and have no issue. Like once it's sort of a Christian yeah. values, she doesn't really care. But yeah, I was definitely was called into question. I would have been slagged the odd time about that growing up. But sure it's water off a duck's back. No.
2: Never- now, far yours in some ways sort of reflects on uh, Kautha's experience too, because you were born in Libya.
5: Yeah. So my parents are Libyan and we moved to Ireland when I was one and a half. So I am very integrated Irish, <laughs> 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 but um, I still, you know, grew up with a Muslim background and used to go to the mosque every weekend and... And that kind of stopped then when I was about 12, 13. We did Ramadan and everything. Why um, did it stop? Because of a few reasons. I mean, my dad went back to Libya and when I was about 12. And he would have been more kind of wanted us to be, you know, good Muslim Libyan sort of thing. Um, but it just wasn't wasn't going to work. But but you
2: stopped or your family stopped?
5: My family, like we would have stopped. So yeah, and it's I hated going to that Arabic school by way. <laughs> it was like the, the Libyan school and the mosque in Klonski that, you know, that lovely mosque. Yeah. So we used to go there every weekend. And I did like all the same subjects I did in school during the week. But then on Saturdays and Sundays, I'd go to this mosque and just learn it all again in Arabic, basically. And then my religion class was just Islam then, you know.
2: But that is hard because so you were you were seven days a week at seven school. Seven days or? a week
5: at school oh, okay. until I was twelve, and um, she so better
2: got six hundred points in the
5: And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I didn't like going because I who likes going to school seven days a week. But now I'm actually like. Glad I went because, you know, I learned Arabic, could have learned how to read and write, know a bit more about the religion, which is good to be educated anyway, even if I'm not practicing. So it's interesting.
2: But did you you feel like you were between two stools? Um, Yeah. You'd come from Libya you were going to school, you know, with a presumably dyed-in-the-wool generation's worth of Dubliners or whatever. Like, so did you feel you fell between two stools or it was just what you knew and you were totally comfortable?
5: Well, it was definitely different because, let's say, for example, in school, during religion class, Mm. if, there was a religion exam on, I obviously wouldn't be participating. Or if there was a mass on, like, you know, how a lot of those ceremonies and yeah. stuff were done, I wouldn't go to those things, you know? Yeah.
2: But that, was that just a quirk of, of your life or something that you felt, you know, existential angst about?
5: No, that was cool. I just saw it as like, a day off like it was grand you know but uh, I'd say for my siblings it was probably a bit trickier because they're all older right so my oldest brother would have been eight when we went and my sister would have been seven and my other brother would have been five so they didn't actually have any English when they came to Ireland so then they had to learn English when they came uh, whereas I sort of learned Arabic and English at the same time and then obviously now my English is a million times better than my Arabic because I was grow up grew up here you know but then I was thinking about this idea of home and like we used to do you know classic Africa holiday every year go for a month to Libya and hang out with all the family you know our whole family's over there and we did that every year but like I haven't been maybe in about 10 years and the Libya that I remember is not there anymore you know so that whole concept of home is interesting because obviously Ireland is home Dublin is home I love my little gaff in Julianstown but like (laughs) at the same time I love the smell of the hot air in Libya and The way there was sand and grass and like the food and how watermelon was just always there. (laughs) 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 Little things like that. But
2: then, so now, so you're obviously, you're 22, is Mm. is that right? Yeah. And sort of starting out on this career in music. Well, actually, I should not even say starting because you started so young, but... um, I'm interested in that because your parents were sort of, you know, two medics, came from Libya and, and now their daughter is running around in Doc Martin boots and being a musician. <laughs> was there an adjustment there for your parents or?
5: I would say so. Yeah. So my mum took a bit of convincing there. Like <laughs> it wasn't the norm for her, of course, you know, for her, it was like you go to college, you do medicine for like eight years and then you're a doctor and everything's sorted, you know?
2: Yeah. You don't and have to have Libyan parents for that, you know, yeah, like you know, my okay. parents. You know, I'm a drag queen. You know what? You yeah. know, it was just so far out of their ken. Yeah. You so know, you tell them they, you're a poet. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like when I opened a bar, my dad was thrilled because he knows what a bar is. You know what I mean? And he could suddenly be asking all the questions about you know because he really understood this. You know, whatever. Yeah. So, well, anyway, so um, uh, Far, I want you to sing us a song for us. Yeah. Um, it's called Silk. Do You want to tell us something about it before?
5: So Silk is about the facades that we all wear and how we all have this sort of inner thing where we know where we should be ourselves. And and then it's also my own sort of interpretation of what identity means to me. So that is basically my spiel. I'm going to play the song now. please <laughs> so do. Let's have a round of applause for
0: Farah.
6: i shall i be not a Every now and then I'll have forgotten it But I know it's in me At peace is all I've ever wanted Then it hits me and it's so hard to be This cloak and all its darkness Carries me Oh how it feels When it's so haunted And it makes it hard to see What's going on beneath When it oh it hits me When it oh it hits me And makes it hard to be And it oh it hits me When it oh it hits me And makes it hard to silk, What could be wrong with it? It's nothing but serene Cause my eyes are how you'd recognize me Because all that matters is my identity But what if I can't see? What if I find it hard to carry on being me? And what if this could be? gate that welcomes every single part of me how far could we go with all our profit hoping that no one will see take me and take away our problems and then maybe we can head out to seeing what if this could be A solution to removing the veil that's wearing me And all of a sudden I see That there's an ocean in the desert and it's waiting for me
2: Evidently, this show has become very Dublin-centric. And, you know, I'm not from Dublin, but I've lived here longer than I have anywhere else, and it it feels like home in that way. But, But if somebody asks me where I'm from, you know, I'm not allowed to say I'm from Dublin. You know, Dubliners will snort at that or whatever. And even if a foreigner asks me, and, you know, they don't want my life story, they want a name of a place... And so I want to say Dublin, but even as I do, I feel, A, I feel like, you know, I, I'm not allowed, I'm breaking some sort of rule. And secondly, I also feel guilty as if I'm sort of being disloyal to Mayo. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so coach, why Dublin? I mean, what is it about Dublin that you like? Or, or that you you know that you thought, well, I, I want this to to feel like home.
0: That's such a great question. Why Dublin? Well, I remember very clearly when I was fourteen, I came home from school and my dad was home, which was a big deal. And he had the telly on, and he was kind of shouting at the TV screen. And I looked at the telly, and there was a British soldier kicking a guy who was on the ground. And my dad's go ah, go on, you bastard, kick him again, you coward. And he was giving out to the telly, which I'd never seen outside of like a soccer match on the telly or something like that. So, uh, and I what's that about, and it turned out what it was. It was 1979. It was the 10th anniversary of, I think, the introduction of troops onto the street or the introduction of internment in Northern Ireland. And my dad, who was from La Hinch in County Clare, was uh, very fired up. You know, for a guy who'd left Ireland with Mm. no nostalgia or sentimentality, a lot of his family died of TB and he wasn't sentimental about Ireland. But something about seeing that image set him off. And it set something off in me as well because up until then, the only thing about being Irish had been Having to spell my name, (laughs) (laughs) explaining my name over and over again. And then suddenly, when I was 14, it was boom. And because I was a very angry teenager as well, it's suddenly we're the underdog. And, you know, suddenly it's we. Mm. Suddenly it's like, oh, I'm Irish. That's who I am. So my whole identity kind of locked in there and it grew from there. And within a few years, of course, I met Shane McGowan, who was like representing the London Irish experience so amazingly. And it was such a political time, Panty. Mm. Oh, my God, Thatcher, the whole neocon rising uh, and bombs going off. It was an amazing time. And the negative of it was so negative, it was death, but the plus side was it really made you think about who am I, what do we represent? And it was a real, not just what side are you on or where are you from, but are you the up the rah, let's blow people up and shoot people? Or are you... James Joyce, yep. Yeats, are you Shannos? You know, it was that, and that was the choice we made. It was a very intense time. So I guess now, when you say why Dublin, I think why Dublin, all those seeds were planted then, <laughs> and eventually at some point, just thought, well, let's go and look at Dublin, and we went up to a place up above Aside, up above the Blue Light. And that was it. Moved in 1989, which is more than half my lifetime ago. Obviously, I've still got, you know, the wit and accent. But
2: when you say we, was that when you were with Elvis Costello? So it was like two foreigners deciding to move two here. Two
0: foreigners. Yeah. Two foreigners moving in. But uh, the sad thing about it is we were isolated because really our main connection with Dublin was we drive through it to get to the airport. And then when I moved down to the flatlands um, and <laughs> finally moved in, I, I, I lived above a, a shoe shop on Drury Street, couldn't have more of a contrast, yeah. like did not sleep for the first year because it was just constant hubbub. And, you know, everyone that would come out of Temple Bar would kind of spill down slowly off of Georgia Street. Probably you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you and your he, mates yeah. keeping Raving
1: me up every night
0: and just as you drift off to sleep at about four or five, then the street cleaner would come by, beep, beep, <laughs> beep down one side, and then you'd just drift off again. And then he'd come down the other side, beep, beep, beep. So it was like an insomnia first year. Yeah. But then I think
2: that you, in a way, well, you and your gang, and in a way sort of embodying this kind of version of Irishness, you know, because the Hottest flowers were always like, you know, they made trad cool for the first time maybe you know yeah we were we were the, the new poster boys for the Fauna.
1: yeah <laughs> i remember we you did a campaign girl for girls. the fawn <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly it was okay to speak irish yeah. and then there were stories mean, i remember hearing that there was a question i think on the leaving cert which was all about the hothouse flowers and what they were doing <laughs> and it was like yes <laughs> <we arrived>. <laughs> <laughs> but um We went to Scalorcon and Colors to Owen, two all-Irish-speaking schools in in South County, Dublin. But there was a huge emphasis on music and on traditional music initially. And we all, you know, the the school took pride in in, in letting us take days off to go and practice music for Sloga or the various feshes or whatever. And there was something about that uh, dynamic, that energy that gave us confidence. And so, like any other teenagers, we discovered rock and roll, you know, or... But also, there are rock and roll bands like the Bothy Band, because yeah. they were a rock and roll band. <laughs> they were a traditional band, but the energy with which they played would lift the roof off any yeah. concert hall. Um, there was mm-hmm. no delineation necessarily between trad music and rock and roll yeah. music. You know, and, and, yeah, because and you sing Shannos, don't you? I do, yeah. I mean, And you don't look like a Shannos singer.
1: Can I just <laughs> say that about
3: you? You're sitting there all in your I, I, cool black. I, I, I kind of do. My grandfather came from Caro in Connemara. But his brother was Val of Florida, And Val remained in Cairo and worked as a farmer. And Val's natural instinct throughout his, his, his working day was to sing. Mm. And happily, towards the, the end of his life, he ended up making one record for Cladder Records. He made a, a, a record called on and Norny. And I gave that record to Liam for Christmas one year. And uh, I mean, Liam was always the one who would sing Shanno songs during our gigs. And, and I never really jumped into that kind of well until Liam handed the record back to me at one point and said, you've got to check this out, you know. And then in another kind of synchronic moment, I was invited by TG Carr to go to the places where I used to holiday as a kid. So we went down to Carrero and I, it, that was the, the spark that set me off. I said, I've got to learn one of these songs. And... Um, I even went down to the to the little pier in Carrow where Val had shot his album cover, you know, that was on the cover of Blonde and Orny. And I had, you know, a picture of myself taken in the set. Sa- I actually sang the song for the first time in that very same location. And the song was um, Or on a Thraboyne, which we now sing nearly every Flowers gig. Because it's funny, you know, I think... Irish people were very
2: connected to our language, whether it's you know our version of English or whether it's Irish, and, and it's something we're really proud of. When, and you know, when all our bridges are named after writers and we, you yes. know, we're musicians. And it's interesting to me because you know, obviously, Farah, we can hear the Arabic influences in in, in your work. But then, Stephen, you, you your work is purely about the language and the rhythm of it, really. And you are have a real connection to the Dublin idioms, and Farah had a song called Scarlet.
5: Um, (laughs) It's called So Scarlet. (laughs) Um,
2: And and so, so what is it about, well, let's call it Dublinese, if you want, that you've, well, that attracts you or do you find so expressive or? Just like the play on words, you Mm -hmm. know, it's, it's poetry. Like Pat Inglesby is my favourite
4: poet, yeah. and like you can't get more Dublin than him, and I love reading his poems and and finding
2: new ways and turns of phrase that that the Dubliners have. I mean, one of the things that you know that I like about the, the Dublin thing is it's very fluid and open and, and your new words come in yeah. you know, really quickly and you never heard an expression before and then six months later, everyone is saying it. And, you yeah. know, and, um, I, I like that. Like about the it. video, I was ah I hear leave <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: <laughs> yeah. Although, God, I some fellas getting kicked in the head down the street. Like, so we shouldn't yeah. be laughing too but that, that, everyone likes out to that.
2: No. Um, nah, so let's take this opportunity for you to say something. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to do <laughs> Dublin, we are, for our, our yeah. version
4: of it. Yeah, know. I'll give that a blast. Um. Dublin. You are grey brick upon brick full of tarmac and hipster pricks. Just face it. All other places pale in comparison. You are more than some former Saxon garrison. Dublin. Your warmth came too late for John Carey. Dublin. Are you even sorry? Dublin. You're divided by more than the Liffey. You said yes to equality. It's about bloom and time. Yet Dublin you always proclaim to cherish all. Dublin. Your panties are on Cable Street compromising any papal feats. Dublin. Jedward. "'Awkward?' "'Dublin, you're more than a settlement on the puddle, "'but Dublin, what's the crack with It's shite? "'Why don't you just admit it, Dublin?' You brought back Sam again But when did you go from the clash of the ash To exchanging gold for cash Dublin Dublin, Oblina, Bolya clear, And 180 other tongues your citizens are using the name It's okay me to fault you to all Dublin where the power is held by too few in the doll. Dublin when would you revolt again 1988 wasn't your true millennium Despite the 50 peas and milk bottles Dublin you're mine But I'm happy to share you Dublin, from RTE, TCD, UCD, U2C, to IFSC, and Acrimonius, Temple Bar, STDs, ODs, 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 and OMGs. No longer the second city. Yet you play second fiddle to Google and Guinness to Facebook and on social twits. Don't look at yourself. Your terror blocks and tenements are an excuse for a solution. Dublin come here till they tell you. you are more than rapid dirt birds and banjacks bouse And are right saying but yes, yeah, sure, it's all good. Jay's that's God. Yeah, why go body? McSire and the lawyer, Dublin I cry for you. Dublin, you're a tough bastard. You're full of the softness of all the people on your streets. Margaret Dunn, dancing on O'Connell Street, the Dice Man, Tom McGinty Moyman on Grafton Street, Pat English with the poems westmore and Street near your mollies. Malone, Ivers and Bloom to Daily Sally, Sandy Mills from the Gospel of Kelly, Drew, McKenna and the to Borstel boys like Brendan being to Glance Rejoicing and Evelyn looking out to sea Snow falling slowly on the dead and glass, Nevin, Glenn and Marquette the ones strolling to Christy Brown willfully controlling a foot to paint pictures and palms to your heroines Brenda Fricker, the city's mother and Maury O'Hara and enchanting other Dublin you are boom and bust Running wild and swift Dublin can I trust you Dublin you're blue as Harry Kirk's cobalt Dublin from a thin, nizzy, dicey roidy To a fusing ninja jacuzzi God-fearing Dublin shooting down Veronica Gear, And Dublin you're bang-bang Forty coats Zazimus, A blind street poet Dublin you were all of us And all who were yet to come So let's go to the grave diggers another have a point Dublin, remember stardust and all your waltzing lovers. Big Jim's arms are outstretched, tourism people, yet are we under the thumb again, Dublin? Your GPO columns are scarred with the crackle of gunshots, Dublin. Your CCTV will never yield your essence like the shots of Arthur Fields. Man on bridge, you were the pool beg. Towers and the poor showers, begging on bachelor's walk. Dublin, you're all talk, yet you have my attention. From Robbie Keane to Paula Me And Dublin's calling Ooh, ah, Paul McGrath While some say up the rah Dublin, bridging gaps with Joyce And Beckett And finally to Rosie Hackett Dublin Paddy Finnegan was forced to sell The big issue on your streets While Daffodil Mulligan Was played the Bell Ramp Beats Dublin, you say lish Dublin, you're full of the Polish And Brazilian speaking Portuguese And now the Chinese Have turned Parnell Street Into Chinatown Dublin, don't let them down Dublin, don't forget no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, Dublin perish the thought of you being racist. Dublin cookers fed the GP on us heading for Monto. Dublin, your bay embraces, despite the cell of field sea. Your mountains frame all your natural beauty. Dublin the and Banshee stricken with TB Dublin. You're European, but you could be craggy island in disguise. Gabriel Conroy is heading west because of an epiphany. Just saying Dublin, you only painted your post boxes green. Is the Abbey doing all your Dublin are notorious for clampers Senators and seagulls To Celtic tigers and septic tanks To singing high kings and rampaging Vikings Dublin, come here Take me for a teddies On a romantic stroll down the pier Dublin, you're a dancing place A sprawling space of villages and many faces On the edge of an island that's been eroded by the Atlantic Battening with being romanticised Dublin, are you dynamic? Struggling with identity changing for the better changing for us don't be scared to change don't be scared we're with you always my friend my home mentioned 50 times in this poem we live in you with you my city McCree i love you most of the time you see Dublin you are me
2: Wonderful. So Thanks. great. Um, and you just did that to like 10,000 people in the three arena, isn't it? Yeah, with Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam and
4: Glenn Hansard and they, they asked me out like at the end of the gig to do it and the biggest credit I had before that was 3,000. But then... The night before, I was in Cork for 40 people in a little cafe. <laughs> yeah. So you never know where the poems are going to take you, you know, and am just enjoying that journey.
2: Well, it's, it's amazing that there's a space for poems to take you. And I, I mean, it's really, there's been a, such a resurgence. Yeah. Anyway, so um, now, Coach, you kind of touched on it earlier when you said you were an angry teenager. Mm-hmm. I, I get the, the you know, when I, when I read things about you, my impression is that in a way you were a teenager looking for something. And then you found it in the London Irish community and and specifically in the Pogues, of course. Is that a a fair assessment?
0: Absolutely. Bang on. Yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, when I think now there was a million people who were qualified for that gig in the Pogues. But Shane just blessed my whole life. He gave me the gig. The first I knew about the Pogues, of course, we were called Pogue Mahone. We weren't called the Pogues. But um, Shay said, oh, I'm starting a band, you know, we're going to play rebel songs, but, you know, kind of like the Dubliners. And of course, Shane was a punk. He's notoriously caught on film at a Sex Pistols gig. He's wearing a Union Jack jacket jacket which (laughs) doesn't fit with the later thing but he he was pure punk he was he was a face around town and I was just starting getting into my journey with music and I'd go to record stores and I walked into one off Tottenham Court Road and there's Shane McGowan behind Mm the counter and I'm like oh you're Shane McGowan he's like am I we <laughs> made mates and um then he was saying I'm starting a band uh, we're going to do this we're going to do that and I said oh great but I was in a hostel I was homeless I was in a hostel but when I did see him the next day I just got my doll money so I could take him to the pub and I think because I had money and I bought him a whiskey <laughs> he said we did the gig we weren't really loud enough so we're going to need a bass player you can be the bass player and I think back on that now, like oh, everything, every good thing in my life, still like thirty-five years later, comes from that decision he mm. made. It's, it's a beautiful, amazing thing.
2: Well, because that's the only course is because you know bass players and all that, you know, they sort of remain in the background so yeah. often. And because most people, you know, are introduced to you first thinking of you as a vocalist because your voice is, on, you know, on so many of the great Pogue records. Ah,
0: that well, that yeah, that could just be a societal thing, isn't it? You see a woman. She's a musician. You assume she's the singer. Yeah. Well, particularly when they're so stunningly yummy looking. <laughs> 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 Why would you stick me at the back? I mean, honestly, lads, come on. But, but like, your your you,
2: you, your your vocals on Haunted, for example, and
0: again, what a blessing. Shane didn't have to give me a vocal on yeah. that album. He, you know, he's a genius songwriter. Oh, Phil Chevron was on the periphery of the band at that mm-hmm. stage, he was a great songwriter himself and was offering songs. Maybe well, well it was now, a...
2: don't turn yourself down here because you are a pretty good songwriter yourself, which is something that uh, more about you that people sort of miss sometimes. But, but you wrote a lot of songs with, when you were with Elvis. And... Yeah,
0: I got co-writes on, on some great songs. Yeah, I was very lucky. God, it's amazing to think about. It just makes my head spin thinking how lucky I've been.
2: Well, you know, you make your own look too. You know, it, it's about your own personality too. If people want to collaborate with you or do things with you, that that alone is a talent.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, I think just being there, being open. I think that's the big lesson I've always learned. Like, if you're open to everything, amazing things happen.
2: Um, well, and speaking of collaborating and um, letting things happen, so, because you two have, course of course, a musical history We yeah. do, yeah. So together, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And, and your, your collaboration,
3: you called yourself prenup. I mean, this all kind of started late on the night of my 40th birthday. And we ended up late that night, back at my place, listening to some music. A few people came back, among them caught. And I had just stopped for a while. We were taking a little break and I was at this kind of... Crossroads. So I wrote these songs, but they were like my little kind of babies that I didn't want anybody to hear. So late at, at night, with a little bit of confidence from a few glasses of red wine, etc., I, I played some of these to Coit and, and quite just, I remember your face just kind of immersing yourself in the, into the music and turning up and looking at me and, and saying, you've got to do something with this. And that for me was a huge shot in the arm. Because myself and Dave, who was the drummer in the Hot House Flares at the time, had had decided that we might try and do something else. But something was needed to complete the picture. And that was caught. So then we met for a coffee and we arranged to go into an office that nobody was using in Temple Bar. And we spent a week there trashing out this music and at the end of that week we had the guts of an album and we went away and we made an album called Hell to Pay and, uh, and <laughs> which then we I assume
2: was another reference to this prenup <laughs> uh, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> well, you, I think you that's, both at, going through divorces at that stage all of us Dave <laughs> Court and myself had just been through a divorce and we were having a drink I think at the stag's head with my brother and we were kind of oh, what do we call ourselves and Luan was ordering the drinks and he said prenup in his kind of senior council voice and we all cracked up laughing and that was it <laughs> so let's um I have some music from you guys should we do a song oh, right. yes, so. we, we, we recorded a song yeah. um, a song that I wrote called Firefighter uh, you know it's funny that we're talking about Dublin and, and, and going away and coming home because oh, it's it was, not uh, funny at all it's, it's well planned well, <laughs> it's, it's well planned it's extremely <laughs> well planned but my friend Kean is a, an old school friend of mine And He went off to to live in Boston. And he lived and worked in Boston for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And his life then suddenly kind of fell apart. His house was burnt down. He lost his job. Somebody stole all of his money. You know, there was all this weirdness that happened. And I remember telling him we were on the phone and what am I going to do? And I just said, look, just come home. You've got your mum's place. You could just go home and, and be there. And we're all here. So the song is called Firefighter and it was inspired by by Cian's story can we can we sing it <laughs>
2: first time you've formed together in 10 years is that right yeah yeah you wouldn't have known <laughs> um, I, I want to just briefly sort of touch on the whole idea of creativity and inspiration and all of that so far like you're 22 years old there's a million things you could be doing but sitting down and writing songs is what you do I, I guess I want to know why or you know what, what, what drives you to do that
5: so I suppose I've always just wanted to bring people together through music because it's such a like chilled out medium but also so powerful like as a way to just like I don't even think people realize how much of a role music has in our lives it's like food and it, it can just change the atmosphere in a room completely it can make you think it can get you nostalgic it can make you cry it can make you laugh so, like, why the hell not, like, <laughs> you know?
2: But <laughs> well, it's funny that you said, you know, because about working with other people in that, because, you know, I know for me personally anyway, I am just awful at sitting alone quietly in the room trying to do something creative. And it's only through conversations with other people or being prodded by other people or agreeing to do something with other people that, that I, I find a way of dragging, dragging it out
5: but that brings the people together still then no
2: pun intended <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and Stephen, for you collaboration is everything in some ways I mean like for example if you're doing something like My Ireland well you're going to have to work with uh, filmmakers and musicians and
4: yeah well, um, I, I would have a similar experience there to yourself when I got into it but primarily I got into poetry for the money <laughs> Uh, you know uh, obviously uh, no, the, no, the Moy Ireland was a bit of a mad one um, so the St Patrick's Festival approached me and commissioned me to write this and then I sort of had an idea of different different people that I'd like to work with and I was able to sort of project manage it but I have an unrest in me probably and probably an anger and uh, if if it wasn't for finding poetry I'd probably be in prison or, or hurt somebody or whatever. I don't know what it does, but it, it definitely, it's a cathartic thing for me. And it's been a blessing to have discovered it. never would have thought I'm dyslexic, mm. you know? Uh, so like writing is a struggle for me. But yeah, I, I think curiosity keeps me going as well now. Like obviously the need to express myself, but as I said earlier on, to have gone from performing for ten thousand people yeah. two nights ago, to meeting you guys uh, and tomorrow I'm going to London to meet management and then later on in the week I'm in Liberty Hall performing with the choir. Like, what the fuck is next? It's great. Especially it's
2: exciting. So <laughs> you think of poetry as a kind of a solitary pursuit, you yeah. know.
4: Well, it is. You would be alone a lot yeah. of the time when I'm, when I'm writing but then the opportunity to share and as a work with those people is something that I really appreciate and I, I just try to embrace it and you were saying being open, Kaj was saying being open to, to possibilities and I say yes to most things and then normally spring something else up, you know.
2: Well, because th- there's a kind of an obvious connection between poetry and music, which is spectacularly illustrated on my left here, Coach, because you are in a band, essentially, with Pulitzer Prize winning poet Paul Muldoon.
1: How wild <laughs> is that? Yeah.
2: Explain that because...
0: <gasps> it's so random. I booked a few gigs in LA last year and I land a job at the Irish Art Centre in Hell's Kitchen playing bass in a band with this dude Paul, who turns out to be Paul Muldoon, who's won a Pulitzer Prize. He's the professor, he's like head of humanities at Princeton, this Ivy League university over there. But, well, he likes to let his hair down, does Paul. He likes to write rock and roll songs and then perform them with a the band once a month at the Irish Arts Centre. And he didn't have a bass player. It was like the Pogues. If you want <laughs> weirdness, he had a band. He had guitars and drums and keyboards would sit in, but he needed a bass player. And they're telling me this. And i going, oh, I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the Pogues turned out to be a bit of a trip. So I said, I'm in, dude, I'm in. So... I'm Paul Muldoon's bass player.
2: <laughs> you get, and it's so funny because I, I, I do a lot of stuff with the Irish Arts Centre and they love him there, you know, and, and, um, but it's so funny because when you listen to this stuff, it's like another person, you know, from you know, Ivy League, you know, serious guy. And then he's like being a hip cat, you know, speaking over your, you know, like, like you, you sort of don't think, you know, that, you know, that everybody's fun, but
0: everybody is fun. Everybody loves Paul. It's a great career path for a poet I think the Paul Muldoon way of doing it like you say if you're open to it you can be the one that sits in their room and you know gets crumbs all down their jacket oh, the and
4: p- the, that's the next on the list now yeah I
0: can totally see you getting that and I can see you rocking stages and you know I, it's all ahead of you it's, and you know Paul is a great shining example you can do anything
2: um, you're actually touring now with Paul
0: Muldoon, is that right? Thank you for mentioning that, Panty. Yes, we're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're,
1: <laughs>
0: we're on tour at the end of August and the first week in September. Funnily enough, we're going to be on the East Coast the electric picnic weekend. So you have to choose go and stand in a field in leash, possibly in the rain, or come to the Abbey and come and see us doing our things. <laughs>
2: well, I have over here Farah, 22 years old. But on this side, then, you know, um, with Figna and Koch, essentially been in the middle of this industry for a number of years. Um, but if you had one piece of advice for a 22 year old who's very talented, and what would it be?
0: My big bugbear for musicians is, and and for any kind of creative person, is watch out for addiction either in yourself or in the people you work with and the people who want to latch on to you in some way, whether it's professionals, i.e. management agents, or, or just to be around you. Know what addiction is and look out for it because we have a vulnerability to it inherent within ourselves which goes parallel with our creativity and you wouldn't want to separate them but you absolutely need to be in control and to manage it and don't let the vampires in just don't let the darkness in just keep that's my thing every day every morning i wake up and said don't let that darkness back in but Farah's a shining example to me of a young person who's just full on yeah. beaming. You can see the vibe off her. She's amazing. Yeah.
2: Well, because, and you're speaking of experience because you had addiction issues, but, but you've been sober and.
0: I've been sober 10 years now. 10 years. Oh, yeah.
2: mm-hmm. Congratulations.
0: <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Thank you
2: very much. And the other thing I wanted to touch on is, because you went back to uh, education, late in life, whatever, and, um, and she's now dripping with pieces <laughs> of paper. But um, one of the things that you looked at was um, how rock bands stay together.
0: Yeah.
2: And, and that just seems like, sort of like a, well, a nutty but fabulous thing to be looking at. I mean, I'm sure you had a more serious title for it than that. What is the secret then?
0: So for my research, I, I framed bands as a small self-managing creative teams. And I looked at the role of fairness and it comes down to equity versus equality, which is where it gets all very nerdy and academic. <laughs> but you two would be the example for me. You two are an equality band. Everyone gets an equal share. There's other bands that use that model, and that's called the equality model. And then there's the equity model, which is what's actually fair, which is like if you do 70% of the work, you get 70% of the reward. Now, the issue comes up if the person who's getting the 30% of that 70 30 split thinks they've done 50% of the work. And that drives so much conflict in bands. Yeah.
2: Now, if you know, you're in your band and, and,
3: and, and <laughs> April 1985. April 1985 and the magic carpet in Cornell Scorch was when the Hot House Flowers came to be. So that's a while ago. Yeah. And which model do you use? Well, we, we use, I think we use a little bit of everything. I really kind of do believe in that equality thing. And mm. It's very difficult to break it down. I, I'm not one for breaking it down into lyrics and music and so on. Yeah. If everybody's in a room together and everybody's creating a song, mm. uh, even if it's the germ of a song in that one moment, then I kind of feel it should be equal we're talking about advice to to farah i think the advice that i would give to farah she's already doing and it's something that we still do which is that you play from your heart and you enjoy it it's really simple
2: yeah anyway so uh, of course you're going to play us out so tell us a little about this song
0: it's going to be called she liked you better when you were drinking (laughs) because everyone who's gone into rehab it's one of the first things you're told you're gonna lose friends and at some point, someone's going to turn around and say, you're no fun anymore. And that's the song we wrote.
2: And Feakness going to help you out with this. I guess. like
0: everything Feakness oh, helping me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, let's go for it. Cool.
1: <laughs> Puke in the gutter, pass out on the curb. Cause party's no longer a noun, now it's a verb. You and your best friend out on the town. Here comes tequila, you're starting to drown. But you wanna know, where did you go? What did you do, and who did you do it to? But she likes you better, when you were drinking When you were drinking, she had so much fun Hand you a whiskey, hey let's get loaded Might as well hand you a loaded gun Bitch wants to kill, you might have to forget her When you were drinking, she likes you better so pretty now you're a mess and even when you say you shouldn't she couldn't care less you and your best friend are starting to fight Here comes the truth at the end of the night. It's over and done, better quit while you're young, better get out of here before she buys another beer. Let's take it to the bridge. So you know the time.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Amazing, wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, and actually that all that remains for me really too, is to thank all of our guests. So um, thank you so much, Farah, for coming along. Thank, thank you, you so so Steve. And thanks to Coach and to Fikna again. <laughs> um, uh, thank you to the producer, um, Helen Shaw, uh, who keeps me in track. So from us, a pantasocracy. Thank you and evening. <laughs>